As we approach the 75th annual commemorations of Trinity, New Mexico, and Hiroshima, Japan, and Nagasaki, Japan, it's always important to remember that nuclear power came out of nuclear weapons. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the In Our Backyard podcast with your host, Jen Galler. This is the Blue Ridge Environmental Defense Leaks podcast, where I discuss environmental issues that are happening right in our backyards. This episode, I talk with Kevin Camps, who is the radioactive waste specialist with Beyond Nuclear. He specializes in high-level waste management and transportation, new and existing reactors, decommissioning, Congress Watch, climate change, and federal subsidies. Beyond Nuclear aims to educate and activate the public about the connections between nuclear power and nuclear weapons and the need to abandon both to safeguard our future. With Kevin, we talk all things nuclear, how it can't solve the climate crisis, how likely it is that another accident will happen, breaking down some nuclear jargon and terms, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, NRC, and how Kevin got into anti-nuclear himself. To contact and connect with Kevin and Beyond Nuclear will be in the show notes below, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Nuclear waste, the radioactive and toxic byproducts from making nuclear energy and weapons, is a serious health hazard, and America has a lot of it. Breaking story tonight, another fire at a nuclear complex where all six reactors are under some stages of distress. There are more than 71,000 tons of nuclear waste stranded at the nation's 104 reactors. Put all those spent fuel rods together and you'd get a pile as big as a football field and more than 20 feet tall. So hi everyone, I'm with Kevin Camps who is the radioactive waste specialist with Beyond Nuclear. So just to start out, how is nuclear energy created and how does it work? Well, thanks for having me, Jen. Happy Earth Day to you and your listeners. Happy Earth Day. Well, nuclear. It's uh, fueled by uranium, usually, although there's this push to try to use thorium as a fuel. The way it works is there are isotopes of uranium in nature that if you can get a hold of them in enough concentration, you can split those uranium atoms. And splitting the atoms releases heat, and the heat is used to boil water in atomic reactors. And then just like the combustion of fossil fuels, that steam that's generated can turn a turbine and generate electricity. So the source of nuclear energy is the splitting of uranium atoms. So that's the commercial side of nuclear, but there's also a weapon side because you can also split a very large quantity of uranium all at the same time, not as controlled as a controlled fission reaction. And that's called an atomic bomb or a hydrogen bomb. So As we approach the 75th annual commemorations of Trinity, New Mexico, and Hiroshima, Japan, and Nagasaki, Japan, it's always important to remember that nuclear power came out of nuclear weapons. Yeah. And then I also just want to ask you some maybe like frequently asked questions or myths concerning the nuclear industry or energy. So just getting your take on it. People say nuclear energy is the future. What do you have to say to that? Well, I think renewable energy and energy efficiency is the future, if we're going to have a future. I mean, there's that little problem of climate chaos and uh, climate destabilization. And, you know, the nuclear power industry has a huge public relations machine. They have a lot of money to throw around. And so they hire the biggest PR firms in the country. And for a long time now, they've tried to sell themselves as the solution to the climate crisis. 
and really nothing could be further from the truth. So a book that really helped me a lot on framing this issue was the 2006 book by Arjun Makajani's organization, Institute for Energy and Environmental Research. And his chief scientist, Dr. Bryce Smith wrote it. The title is Insurmountable Risks, and it's about why nuclear can't solve the climate crisis. So this was 2006. And just the broad parameters that he laid out there were, it costs too much, it takes too long, the climate catastrophe will have come and gone before nuclear even shows up at the starting gate. So that's one problem. It can't solve the problem. It won't solve the problem. And then the title, Insurmountable Risks, was all the problems that nuclear brings with it. And their listing was nuclear weapons proliferation, the risk of accidents, disasters. And this was five years before Fukushima. Of course, Chernobyl had already happened, Three Mile Island had already happened, other nuclear reactor disasters. But this was, you know, five years before a triple meltdown in Japan. And then another chapter was about the dilemma of what to do with radioactive waste. And I would add, you know, we've been trying for 75 years to figure that one out. So is it beyond our capability as a species? We should stop making this stuff. And we would add other things too, like uranium mining. And Dr. Makajani would agree with this. The regulations are so lax on uranium mining and uranium milling that it's actually the biggest health impact of the whole nuclear fuel chain, ironically, because mm -hmm. uranium from nature, as bad as it is, once it goes through fissioning in a reactor and artificial radioactive isotopes are generated, now it becomes a million times more radioactive, more hazardous. But ironically, because they are so sloppy with uranium mining and milling, it creates huge health impacts. And guess where they do the uranium mining and milling? In the United States, it's usually in Native American areas. The Four Corners is an example of that. So um, the Navajo and the Diné and the Utes have suffered terribly from uranium mining and milling. Yeah, that was a lot of great info. And another common thing is that nuclear energy is safe, but how likely is it that accidents like Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, Fukushima will happen again? Arnie Gunderson with Fairwinds Associates, he's a nuclear engineer, and he used to be at the top of the nuclear power industry, but he blew the whistle on unsafe practices, and then his career was over. He was told, Arnie, you're either with us or you're against us, and you cross the line. So now he's on our side, and he's an expert witness for anti-nuclear groups, and he's very knowledgeable. And he simply put it, hey, look, let's just do the math, you know. He divided the number of reactor disasters we've had in history by the number of years reactors have been around. And he said, hey, about every five years, if you do the math, there's going to be a reactor meltdown. So we have about 450 reactors left in the world. And one problem is they are quite old, a lot of them. They're entering their breakdown phase, which means the same thing as with a toaster. The older engineered machine is, the more likely it is to break down. And with a reactor, that can be really bad. The disasters we've been talking about, like Three Mile Island and Chernobyl, those were brand new reactors that had their disasters. So that was the break-in phase where unforeseen bugs kind of worked themselves out in a really destructive way. Fukushima Daiichi, they were old reactors, but it was a natural disaster that triggered that catastrophe. But I tell you, I mean, just one example in the United States, Davis Bessie in Ohio is a very troubled reactor that has had a half dozen or more major near misses with catastrophe over the decades. And now it's over 40 years old. And ironically enough, it fired up on Earth Day in 1977. 
Mm. It was supposed to shut down at its 40th year, which was 2017 on Earth Day. That would have been lovely. But instead, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission rubber-stamped a 20-year license extension, despite all of this information being brought forward about how dangerous it was. So davis Bessie is just one example of a breakdown phase reactor just living on borrowed time. And you mentioned it a little bit previously, but could you explain the whole nuclear fuel chain and the problems that we encounter with that? Sure. Yeah, it's a very complex fuel chain, actually. It starts with uranium in nature that is mined, and there's various ways of doing that. It used to be hard rock mining, where they'd actually have shafts into the earth. So again, in the Four Corners, Navajo uranium miners would be sent down into these mines to bring out the uranium, and they were not warned about how dangerous the radon in the air in the mine was. It was very concentrated. So really, there's been a lost generation of Navajo men who were uranium miners because they died of lung cancer which they didn't even have a word for in their language before this experience. So uranium mining, and then it goes to mills, and there's really only one operational mill that I know of in the United States these days. It's the White Mesa Mill in the Four Corners, very near Ute land, and it's very polluting there too. And I should say that, you know, that dotted line on the map that separates the U.S. and Canada, I could be giving examples from the Great Lakes because unfortunately, There's uranium mining just across the border from Michigan in Ontario, again on Ojibwe land, Serpent River First Nation. They do have mines and mills up there that have made a terrible mess in Ojibwe country. Mm -hmm. Then there's processing, there's refinement, and there's in the United States, because of the reactor designs, they enrich the uranium. I mentioned certain isotopes are fissile. They can sustain a chain reaction. That's the uranium-235 isotope. It's less than 1% of uranium in nature, but in the United States, it's enriched to something like 3% U-235, 4%, 5%. That's reactor fuel. If you were to go up to 20% or higher, that's called weapons usable. But when they use it in weapons, it's usually 90% uranium-235. And then again, in Canada, they have a different reactor design. They can use uranium straight from nature. It's been processed and refined and purified to some extent, but it's not been enriched. They work with the uranium-235 percentage that comes from nature. They do it in a different way that causes a different kind of pollution. They generate a lot of tritium in Canadian reactors that then goes into the Great Lakes. It's radioactive hydrogen that's uh, hazardous to human health and other living beings. That's just the front end of the nuclear fuel chain. There's still the fuel fabrication stage where they make the fuel rods that go into reactors. Then they put the fuel rods in the reactors and they initiate a chain reaction. They split the uranium atoms. They make the heat that boils the water that makes the electricity. What's left over after a couple years in a reactor core, the uranium fuel is no longer useful for that purpose. It's not efficient, but it is, like I said, a million times more radioactive than when it went in as fresh fuel. And now it has to be isolated from the living environment forever into the future because it's so hazardous. We won a court case in 2004, I guess it was, and the United States Environmental Protection Agency was forced to acknowledge that irradiated nuclear fuel is hazardous for a million years into the future. Wow. It's actually much longer than that, but we'll take it because they were trying to cut off regulations at 10,000 years. So that was a big victory 
So you can see that's the uranium fuel chain and it ends with a forever deadly poison that we don't know what to do with. Yeah. And that's a huge problem that people are dealing with now is just what to do with the waste. So breaking down some of the jargon associated with the nuclear industry, consolidated interim storage facilities, CISF, what are these and where are they a threat? Well, because we don't have a solution for nuclear waste, the industry and its friends in government have come up with some really bad ideas over the years and decades. So Yucca Mountain, Nevada, which is Western Shoshone Indian land, has mm-hmm. been targeted since 1987. The legislation was referred to as the Screw Nevada Bill informally, but it's really the most common name that's used. That was the, the amendments to the Nuclear Waste Policy Act. But because Nevada and the Western Shoshone and their allies across the country in the environmental movement, the environmental justice movement, have fought so hard for 33 years now, they've never gotten away with the Yucca Mountain dump. They keep trying. So as a plan B, unfortunately, they've come up with this other idea called consolidated interim storage facilities. They've called it different things over the decades, monitored retrievable storage sites or independent spent fuel storage installations or away from reactor storage. They just keep changing the name. But what it means is bring all the high level waste from all the reactors, which are mostly in the Eastern United States, out west and park it on a parking lot. And the targeted sites these days, this current round of this fight, include New Mexico, and that's a predominantly Hispanic area in southeastern New Mexico. And then just across the Texas state line, just 39 miles away from the Holtec site in New Mexico, is the waste control specialist site in Texas. Again, largely Hispanic communities in the Permian Basin there. So that is being targeted for these CISFs, Consolidated Interim Storage Facilities. And there's a couple problems with this idea. One is, if it's going to go to a permanent repository someday, somewhere, we don't know where, we don't know when, why would you take all the risks of transportation to take it to a temporary site when you could just wait and then send it straight to the repository? You're multiplying the transportation risks with these CIS sites. The other problem is, what if a repository never opens? And then these surface facilities become de facto permanent. And the problem with that is we were talking about this waste is deadly forever. The containers it's inside of are going to eventually fail. They're simply going to corrode with age-related degradation. Mm -hmm. And the contents will ultimately be released. And that would be catastrophic if it happens at the surface. We've yet to find geology that can contain this stuff forever. So we are in a real pickle with this question. Yeah, it's a huge, it's a huge question. So high level waste and low level waste, what does that mean specifically? Yeah, Dr. Makajani, who I mentioned, has pointed out that this is one of the worst waste categorization schemes or, you know, policies in the world of any country. It's pretty absurd. The only thing that's considered high level radioactive waste is the irradiated nuclear fuel itself. And then everything else, no matter how radioactive it is, is considered low-level waste. (laughs) So they actually have a category of low-level waste that's called greater than class C. So increasing levels of radioactivity, class A is the lowest level, class B, class C, greater than class C. Greater than class C are things like reactor internals, filters that catch radioactivity that's loose in the system, supposedly, concentrated, very intense, and treated equivalently as high-level radioactive waste. So it shows this blurring anyway. 
and even low level, lower levels of radioactive waste, uh, some of it has to be remotely handled with radiation shielding, or it could deliver a lethal dose to a person in a short period of time, like 20 minutes, if you're close enough to it. High level radioactive waste, the fuel itself could deliver such a dose within minutes or seconds if you're close to it and you don't have radiation shielding between you and it. And this is uh, gamma radiation, like x-rays that's being given off. It can also be neutrons being given off. So that, that is what's lethal and so hazardous about the waste. There's other hazards too. There's alpha particles, there's beta particles, which, you know, certainly you can be hurt by exterior doses that pass through you or attack your skin if they get on you. But even more significant is internal doses. If you inhale or ingest, or if you have a wound that it gets inside of, that's where uh, radioactivity can do the most harm is once it's inside your body. And then decommissioning, we hear that word a lot. What does that mean and the, the significance of it? A little bit of good news. We've had a record-breaking number of reactor shutdowns in the United States since 2012 and Canada too. So more, about a dozen reactors have shut down just in the last eight years, which is a record-breaking number. And so once a reactor shuts down permanently, it enters what's called the decommissioning phase, which means they're dismantling the nuclear power plant. They're shipping the wastes off, at least the low level radioactive waste, because there are dump sites, unfortunately, for that. Places like Waste Control Specialists is also a low level radioactive waste dump for the whole country. Texas there takes classes A, B, and C, I believe. They do not take greater than class C. Just like high level, there's nowhere for greater than class C to go right now. So in decommissioning, you have these giant facilities that are dismantled and various waste streams go different places. And what you're left with after complete decommissioning is done is you still have the high level radioactive waste and the greater than class C waste sitting at the former nuclear power plant site in what are called dry casks. They're outdoor containers, giant cylinders, 20 feet tall, that are out in plain sight, and there they sit because they have nowhere to go. Another thing that's left behind after decommissioning is completed is radioactive contamination of the landscape, the flora and fauna. They take a lot of shortcuts. They only clean so far down, and we're talking inches down, maybe sometimes feet. But the pollution that's been generated can go down tens of feet or hundreds of feet, depending on the reactor site. And they just leave it behind and they call it a day. So it's a nuclear version of sweeping it under the rug. And these decommissioning projects, I mean, they can cost hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars to do. Sometimes it costs more to decommission the nuclear power plant than it costs to construct it in the first place. So when Dr. Bryce Smith said nuclear is too expensive to matter on the climate problem, decommissioning is showing itself to be hugely astronomically expensive, even though they're leaving such big messes behind. Yeah. Deep isolation. What, what is that? Yeah. Deep isolation is kind of a plan C. So if they don't get away with consolidated interim storage facilities, or even if they do, this new company... It's been around a few years now. It's called Deep Isolation Incorporated has this new idea. And I refer to them as snake oil salesmen because I think it's so dangerous. What they're proposing is they're really taking a version of fracking technology. And what they want to do is they want to drill very narrow diameter boreholes into the ground. It's also called deep borehole disposal. And it came out of the Department of Energy. And actually, some of the folks in this company are former Department of Energy officials. So they've just kind of walked through the revolving door. And I think they're hoping to make a lot of money. 
And the whole idea is, well, you'd have to package the high-level radioactive waste in very small containers, maybe just, I don't know the figure, but maybe a fuel assembly per container or just a few. So it could fit down this narrow diameter hole that's very deep, relatively deep, like we're talking 3,000 feet deep. So they really are depending on this fracking kind of technology. The problem is, you know, I fear that deep isolation is going to try to do this wherever they can get away with it including at the reactor sites. So because there's been such clamor against the mobile Chernobyls, the transportation dangers, against these environmentally racist dump sites they've targeted at native lands or Hispanic communities, if they have to, why not just dump it right where it's at? The ultimate sweeping it under the rug. And they're going to you know, try to justify that everything's going to be fine. It'll stay put right where we bury it. I think that's very questionable. I, I attended a nuclear waste technical review board meeting several years ago, which is a U.S. federal agency. And their job is to, you know, oversee, to examine and analyze the science and the technology of radioactive waste management. And they had, you know, a panel of a dozen PhD geologists asking questions of the Department of Energy about deep borehole disposal that the DOE could not answer the first thing about. And it was very alarming. Mm -hmm. DOE is so confident that everything's going to work out fine. And these folks who know their stuff were asking very basic questions that DOE could not answer. And in fact, when DOE tried to do deep borehole disposal test drills in various places, the Dakotas, Texas, New Mexico, they got run out of town on a rail by the local communities. DOE just has such a bad reputation after all these decades of screwing up all over the country that people just don't even want them to come to town in the first place. But this company's going for it and they've got a big backer, unfortunately, Bechtel, which is a huge nuclear corporation. They've built something like two thirds of the reactors in the US and half the reactors in the world. They've made godzillions of dollars on nuclear power and now they're gonna try to make even more money on the deep borehole, deep isolation incorporated. Yeah. Yeah, and going off that with the DOE, so the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, could you explain that and then your experience with them maybe? Yeah, so the Department of Energy is a federal agency in the executive branch, and actually they mostly do weapons. <laughs> with a name like Department of Energy, it's ironic that mostly what they do is nuclear weapons related. Yeah. But um, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission is a government agency. It's federal. Okay. They call themselves an independent agency, and they have a bad attitude about it, I think. They think themselves independent of the executive branch, and the NRC is mandated to protect public health and safety and the environment, but it's a really bad joke. They're a rogue agency. They're completely in the service of the industry that they're supposed to regulate, there's that revolving door so that some of the NRC commissioners, these five directors of the agency, just go through the revolving door and start making huge fortunes on their service to the industry. You know, they call it public service at the NRC, but it's like serving the public up for dinner to the industry is what they do. So they're supposed to regulate nuclear safety. And uh, we've seen time and time again that they don't do that, that they hem and haw and they whitewash and they try to create the illusion that nuclear energy is being safely regulated while at the same time doing the industry's bidding at every turn. And the latest example of that, unfortunately, is the COVID-19 pandemic where the industry has had all these requests that they want and they've had them for years or decades 
And here's an excuse to actually put them in place. So under the cover of COVID-19, they're rolling back regulations. So just some examples, very critical safety inspections and repairs and replacements and maintenance is all going by the wayside under the excuse that, well, we can't have people working on that stuff. The virus might spread in the nuclear power plants, and it is spreading anyway. You name it. The construction site in Georgia at Vogel 3 and 4, there's latest figure is 80 plus COVID positives down there, but also at the old reactors. So what they're doing is they are racing through refueling outages at old reactors to get them back online, generating electricity, no questions asked, skipping all the safety steps. And it's really a dangerous gamble. And the other example would be uh, work hours. They're allowing nuclear workers to work instead of 72-hour work weeks maximum. Now it's gone up to 86. So you could easily have uh, nuclear workers working 12-hour days, seven days a week for two weeks straight. And with that much fatigue, you know, there are rules about truck drivers, how long they can drive before they have to pull over and rest. I mean, mistakes get made. Things get missed. So it's kind of this perfect storm of nuclear risks that NRC has rubber stamped during this uh, very stressful time. Yeah. And yeah, as we see, there's so many moving parts going on with the nuclear industry. What are you and others at Beyond Nuclear kind of like focusing your efforts on right now? We have four staff and we divide up the nuclear world accordingly. So I do radioactive waste work. Paul Gunter does reactor oversight. Cindy Folkers does radiation and health matters. And Linda Gunter keeps an eye on the international scene where the rest of us are more focused on the U.S. and me, Canada, on the Great Lakes. And so for myself, radioactive waste, uh, we're fighting these dumps in New Mexico and Texas and also Nevada keeping an eye on deep isolation. Paul is very busy with the current wave of regulatory retreat by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, trying to shine a light on the dangers of that. Cindy, with Chernobyl's 34th annual commemoration coming up on April 26th, she's looking at the wildfires um, happening near Chernobyl right now, as is Linda too. So we're constantly busy, and when something like COVID-19 happens, um, or Fukushima then busy is an understatement. So yeah, <laughs> it's just out of trouble. And then is there anything that we missed or just something that you want to touch on? Well, just because it's a Bradel broadcast, I wanted to talk about how it's always been a honor and privilege to work with Bradel mm-hmm. over the decades. And, you know, these fights we can win. Bradel was on that first round of trying to fend off bad dump site proposals and, the Blue Ridge Mountains were targeted for the National High-Level Radioactive Waste Dump. And unless geology can meet a long list of criteria from environmental justice to scientific suitability to consent-based siting, and the list goes on and on, then those sites have to be disqualified from any further consideration. And Bradel did that work in the 1980s, in the 1990s showing how these sites in your neck of the woods are not suitable for this purpose. So here we are all these decades later fighting the same fights, but it's important. It's a life and death decision in the end, maybe not in the immediate future, although transportation accidents or even operational accidents come to mind, but certainly for future generations, if the wrong site becomes the dump and leaks massively into the environment, like would happen at Yucca Mountain, And it's those future generations who are going to bear that harm. 
Yeah, exactly. And then I'm just curious, how did you get into radioactive waste and like this nuclear environmental scene? Yeah, thanks for asking. I I stumbled on a Hiroshima commemoration when I was 17 years old. I really Mm. didn't know it was even happening. And I found myself there and it kind of was helpful to me because I'd been, I'd been afraid of nuclear weapons as a kid growing up. Then I saw that people were also concerned and were doing something about it at this commemoration. And I was on a peace march in 1992. It was called Walk Across America for Mother Earth. And the main issue was nuclear weapons testing in Nevada on Western Shoshone land. And right when I landed back home in Michigan after that walk, which was you know a mind blowing experience, I then had my eyes opened to the nuclear power issues in Michigan. And wouldn't you know, right when I got back home, they were starting to store high level radioactive waste on the beach of Lake Michigan. Oh, wow. Lake Michigan's always been sacred to me. And I was like, what are you talking about? And so I kind of got started on the weapons side of things, but then had to move over to the nuclear power side of things because of what was happening back home. Nice. And then how can people contact or connect with you? Well, our website is beyondnuclear.org. And as I described our job descriptions, it's kind of divided up that way. So check out the menu. And, you know, for me, just email me, kevin at beyondnuclear.org. Thank you so much to Kevin for sharing all your knowledge and work against the nuclear industry. I'm going to link all the terms we talked about, like CISF, decommissioning, deep isolation, and the book Kevin mentioned called Insurmountable Risks, which talks about how nuclear isn't the solution to the current climate crisis. If you have further questions or want to learn even more about nuclear, I'll link Kevin's organization, Beyond Nuclear, so you can go there. And tune in next Friday for a new episode, and have a good week, everyone.